Good morning. Happy Easter. It's my honor to welcome you here this morning. Would you please stand and uh, join me in the call to worship? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The Lord is risen. It is great to see you as we worship together today. Uh, there are a few people still coming in, and if you have some room in your row and you can 
uh, scooch to the middle a little bit to open up some of the aisles. That would be helpful as uh, we attempt to seat folks. As you're doing that, which probably doesn't make any sense, but let's take a few minutes to greet each other. Uh, so you're going to go out of your rows and then someone may take your seat. But let's greet each other as we worship. So now you can scooch in after we've done that. There's just a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. First of all, I want to congratulate the six young people who were baptized at the earliest service this morning. If you see some folks, little ones, young people around who have wet hair, you'll know what happened. They were baptized. It was just a glorious experience for them and for us as a church to celebrate this awesome day in their lives. And uh, we rejoice with them and celebrate with each of them. I also want to uh, thank the, the uh, Pastor John, the youth group, the um, Fillmore and the Campus Heights Lay Shepherd groups who uh, ran the breakfast for us. And uh, as we mentioned, this was a fundraising event for the youth group from donations. And John was telling me they made over $1,000. So thanks so much for your contributions. I know you gave above and beyond. And the great thing is they had all that food to begin with. They had very little food left, so we did a good job eating it. So that's, that's even better. And I uh, also want to uh, thank those of you who donated flowers. To, uh, it just uh, adds so much to the celebration today to see this in honor and memory of others. And appreciate those who have worked with those. And I also want to say thank you. I don't know if they're in here right now, but thank you to the people who are giving up being in here with us today to work in the nursery, to do children's church. Uh, we really appreciate uh, their willingness to sacrifice uh, and, and to serve as a part of our worship today. I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the Nicene Creed. This is a little different than the Apostle Creed's wording, which we used in the early service. Actually, 1,692 years of Christian history has been repeating this affirmation or confession of our faith. So read along with me. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary 
and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic Church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading today is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you see him not, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. Almighty God, in raising Jesus from the grave, you shattered the power of sin and death. We confess that we remain captive to doubt and fear, bound by the ways that lead to death. We overlook the poor and the hungry and pass by those who mourn. We are deaf to the cries of the oppressed and indifferent to calls for peace. We despise the weak and abuse the earth you made. Forgive us, God of mercy. Help us to trust your power to change our lives and make us new, that we may know the joy of life abundant, given in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Amen. We now have the privilege of returning to God from the ways in which he has blessed us. As the ushers come forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings, please stand with me for the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, on this glorious Easter day, our hearts are full of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and your power in raising him from the dead. May the gifts that we now present to you truly reflect the joy and the gratitude in our hearts. Amen. Please be seated.
How can it be the one who died has borne our sin through sacrifice to conquer every sting of death? Sing, sing hallelujah. For joy awakes the dawning light when Christ's disciples live their right. truth and power and grace and pouring out their lives they gain life, life Children may be dismissed for Children's Church at this time. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone. This solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What eyes of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still and strife cease, my God. 
This is a day of celebration and a day when we acknowledge the great power of God. And it struck me as as I was thinking about our time of prayer today that this ought to be a time when we offer our prayers together. And so I want to invite you to to be a part of the time of praying. Rather than just me praying for us, we pray for each other. And so I want to want to ask you to uh, be willing, if you are, to, if you can, to take a, as we pray together, maybe to think of a one or two sentence prayer that you would like to pray. If you can stand, it might help others to hear a little better. But uh, we're going to begin with uh, words of praise and thanksgiving and gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. And then we'll spend some time also praying about the needs and the burdens of our lives and, and of the world. 
But uh, let me invite you to, to be a part of this time of praying together. In this moment now, let us offer our words of, of praise and thanksgiving to God. Thank you for the faithful people who've come before us. They too did not see you, but they've passed the good news, and it's so real to us today. Father, we do not come to this great celebration in a vacuum. Life is still a struggle. The world is in great need. So now we offer to you our prayers of intercession. Prayers for burdens, ours, others, the world's. As we bring before you the needs of our lives and of this great world that you love and have created.
Father, we pray for uh, the work of your kingdom around the world and around us. Pray for the churches all around us worshiping you today. May your anointing be upon each one. We pray for your church around the world as people gather to celebrate who you are and what you've done. We pray especially for our brothers and sisters who worship in very dangerous places, places where they are threatened and persecuted because of their desire to follow you. We pray for protection. We pray for your grace. And we pray for their witness, that, that they, will, they will be a witness for you, that those who, who hate them, those who oppose them, might so see your love in them that their hearts would be changed. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Give us courage to understand the resurrection of Jesus and to trust you with all of our lives. Help us to step forth into a new day, a new season of growth and grace. And we pray, Father, that you will give us the power of Christ to live as you created us to live. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen, and returning Lord. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day.
Praise God, he is risen. Our gospel reading is from John 20, verses 1 through 10. Following the tradition of the church, if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you ask the other guys what made them follow him, I'm not sure what they'd say. But for me, I really didn't have a choice. It was as if I'd been waiting for him to show up. 
When my brother Andrew introduced me to him, I did, I dropped everything and followed him. He was magnetic, a mix of strength and humility. Now, you would think that after feeling such a dramatic need to follow this man, I might have listened carefully and done everything he said without question. Well, no, I'm not that smart. I follow, but not meekly. I question. I blurt out opinions and generally stir things up. Not that I never say the right thing. Once Jesus asked us, who do you say I am? And I answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And his answer was amazing especially considering what a troublemaker I am. He said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That was a good day. But then there were bad days. Like when Jesus told us he had to suffer and die, I took him aside and said, Stop talking that way! This time his answer was a little less amazing. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Wow. That was hard to take. I could tell you a lot more about my blunders, but the worst came after Jesus was unjustly arrested. I had already failed him by falling asleep when he asked for company and support while he prayed, and I'd impulsively wounded one of the soldiers who came to arrest him. Put away your sword, he said as he gently reached out and healed the man's wound. But later, as he was being questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest, I made the biggest of all my mistakes, and I did it three times. As I waited outside, someone asked me, aren't you one of his friends? A coward, I answered, no, I don't even know him. Two more times. I was asked the same thing. And two more times, I denied knowing Jesus. As I spoke the lie the final time, Jesus turned his head and looked at me. His eyes met mine, and I felt a chill rush over me. He will hate me now, I thought. But no. His eyes were not filled with hate. They were kind. They were forgiving. His kindness made my betrayal even more difficult to face. Filled with shame, I turned and moved quickly away, tears running down my face. Jesus was taken away and hung on a cross to die a horrible death. All of our hopes died with him. We were left with nothing but despair. 
but unbelievably, that was not the end. Yes, he died, as he had said he must. But on the third day, he rose from death to life, and hope came to life again with him. After his resurrection, he appeared and spoke to us several times before he returned to his Father in heaven. His message for me was, feed my sheep. And that's what I've spent my life doing. His forgiveness and belief in me gave me hope, not just for a life someday with him in the future, but for a life lived in his presence every day. Do I regret leaving everything to follow Jesus? Oh, no. I was a fisherman when I met him, but he changed me. He made me a fisher of men. I can only describe my feelings in that moment as panic and fear. You know that feeling when you you wake up and you realize the sun is a little bit too bright? And there are too many people moving around? It was one of those days. Freshman in college, and uh, I had a, I had a um, early morning class, 7.45, Tuesday and Thursday mornings, accounting, of all things. <laughs> Taught by an accountant who had absolutely no teaching experience ever in his life. I can guarantee you that uh, as a student. And when I rolled over, I realized it seemed bright it, I heard a lot more people in the hall than probably should have, and I looked at my clock, and it was 8.30. Now, this is an hour and a half class, so I'm halfway through, but here's the problem. It was the day of our midterm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one second, I'm out of bed, throwing on as clothes as fast as I can, run it where I lived at the school. George Fox, where I went to school, had a canyon between where I lived and the, all the academic buildings. So I had to run across this thing, up, down, up, back, over to the other side, run, race into class. And, of course, everybody's in there taking the test. The professor just shakes his head, looks at me, and says, well, do the best you can. Now, the only positive thing about that is I can tell you it really didn't affect my grade. Uh, <laughs> it, it really had no bearing on my grade at all. You know, it's not like I was getting an A, and then this really brought me down. No, it, it, not at all. After that class, everyone agreed, uh, no one more than my professor, no one wanted me to be their accountant. That was not my thing. But you know that feeling? You know that feeling when, when you, you, you wake up and, and it's not the right time, that panic that sets in? But we also know the feeling of the night before. I, I've been, uh, had experiences where I've had, you know, a six o'clock flight out of Buffalo. 
And so uh, rather than, you know, you want to arrive there at 4.30, so instead of driving up in the middle of the morning, I go up at night, and the whole time in the hotel, I'm lying there afraid to go to sleep because afraid I'll oversleep and miss my flight. And, and you, you panic, and, you know, you set an alarm, and then you call the desk to have them call you also, and you ask somebody else, will you please call me? You know, you have all these, these systems to try to do it. And because we all, we all have moments when we need wake-up calls. And, and, and there's something about that. But here's the thing about wake-up calls. As I think about them, they're far less about, what, about ending our sleep. As they're much more about beginning our day. I mean, the reason, we want, the reason we want to get up early at a certain time, we want to make sure that we get up at this time, is because we have something important to do in the day. That's why we need wake-up calls. It's not because we're afraid we're going to sleep more than we should. It's because we have something we need to get up for. And as I pondered this day and I pondered the writings of Peter here and, and, the, and the stories of, of the resurrection, I'm struck by the fact that Easter is a wake-up call. It is one of those things that, that awakens us. And like a wake-up call out of our sleep, it is something that is not, not just the end of Holy Week. It's not just the end of the crucifixion and the experiences of Jesus' death. It is the beginning of... Of everything. And for you and me, it is the beginning of life. It is the beginning of life with Christ. It is the beginning of experiencing what God created us to be and to experience. And Peter describes that in this first section of his first chapter of his first letter. He talks about this inheritance that we have. In Jesus, that because Christ is raised, we have an inheritance in Him. And He describes this inheritance as something that will come to us one day as inheritances do. Inheritance are something that we look forward to. And He says this inheritance is secure, it cannot be defiled, it cannot be corrupted. No one can, can snatch it from Him. It is secure, totally, completely. Without any reservation. It's a little hard for us to understand inheritance like that. Because we live in a world of things like stock markets. That fluctuate. If you have an inheritance that's in the stock market. One day it can be worth a lot. And the next day not so much. And it zigzags a lot. There are sometimes when on inheritances. Where someone can steal the inheritance. Or sometimes where people can challenge the inheritance. There's always a little bit of insecurity about whether the inheritance is going to be there when, when it's time. But Paul Peter says to us, that's not the case with the inheritance that's ours in Christ. The inheritance of Christ is secure, safe against everything and anything. And there is absolutely nothing in all the world that can change that. And I know sometimes in our theological system, we get a little bit nervous about this whole idea about a secure inheritance. We shouldn't. We might want to, we might, we need to be careful about our own willingness to engage that inheritance. But we are never insecure about the inheritance that is ours in Christ. It is always safe. And Peter makes this, this is the foundation of what he talks about when he talks about the resurrection. Is that because Christ is raised, we have life, we have an inheritance in him. 
And it is secure. This isn't the first time God's talked about awakening his people. The resurrection isn't the first time. God always has been talking to his people about waking up. When he he brings the the Israelites out of Egypt, he is in essence saying, wake up from, from being people who were enslaved to people who were free. And all throughout the history of his people, and in Isaiah chapter 51, he says, wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You've drunk the cup of the Lord's fury, but you've drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drops, but now wake up. And a few verses later, at the beginning of chapter 52, he says, wake up, wake up, O Zion. Clothe yourselves with strength. Put on your beautiful clothes, O city of Jerusalem. For unclean and godless people will enter your gates no longer. Rise from the dust, O Jerusalem. Remove the chains of slavery around your neck, O daughters of Zion. This is what God desires for us, his people. The problem we have with the inheritance is that it seems a long ways off. If someone has left you an inheritance and you can't get it until a certain time, maybe you reach a certain age or some event happens, it doesn't really feel like it has any bearing on your life in the moment because it's a long ways off. It's something that you can't really quite imagine. You can't experience it. It's just sort of out there. You know it's supposed to be coming, but it feels just so far away. And I think we wrestle with this, with these words of Peter and with the inheritance that's ours through the resurrected Christ because it feels so far away. He says, you will receive this inheritance on that day when Christ, who has risen, reappears. But here's the thing about what Peter says. It is not just about that day. It's about this day. It's hard to see that. It's hard to grasp that because we live with so much pain and difficulty and disappointment and struggle today. We don't really often feel the full measure of that inheritance because life becomes so complicated and life becomes so messy. And in those moments, we begin to fall asleep on the inheritance that's ours. I mean, it's natural. We wonder, we, we question. I mean, you would think, if you're following the one who rose from the grave, there ought to be some perks to that. Right? I mean, if you follow the one who rose from the grave, we shouldn't have to go through as much pain as other people. We shouldn't have to deal with as much disappointment. We shouldn't have to struggle like other people struggle. Is it? There should be a perk That you get from from being connected to the one who conquered the grave. And there is. It's just not how we tend to think about it. Nowhere in the scriptures are God's people promised to have an easier life. In fact, truth be told, we're actually promised that more than likely our lives will be more difficult. More people will oppose us. People who, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Life is complicated. Life is hard. But Peter's point is not, don't worry about it. His point is not, act like it doesn't matter. His point is not, all that stuff is trivial. No, his point is, because Jesus is raised, 
Life has meaning now. Even when it's difficult. Even when it's a struggle. Even when it's painful and disappointing. Because Christ has conquered every reason for what happens to us. And Peter says that actually for those who are in Christ, for those who are connected to the risen Christ because he has risen, God actually takes the messy, complicated, difficult struggles, the pain, the agony. He takes it and he actually can make beautiful things out of it. Just as Christ made something beautiful out of the cross when he rose from the dead. I was pondering that and it struck me that maybe it's sort of like a machine that polishes precious stones. You put a stone in the machine and it's rough and it's jagged and it needs work. And you put the stone in in the polisher and you turn it on and it it begins to, to bounce around in that machine until its surface is smooth and beautiful. And as we stand back and watch it, we think, no big deal, this is great. But if you were the stone, it's a big deal. If you're the stone in there getting knocked all over the place and bumped and, and, and shoved and, and scraped and pushed and pulled, you want to stop. And if the stone could reach its, if it had arms, it could reach out and turn off the machine, it would. And what do we do? The whole time we would say to it, but you're getting, you're becoming beautiful. You're becoming lovely. You're going to love what you look like when this is all done. But we're in the middle of it. You're like, well, you know what? Maybe I'd rather not be so beautiful. But it's only because God wants more for us than we want for ourselves. Maybe think of it this way. I had, we were talking about this in a group of people that last week. And one person, one person said to me, if I could, if, if my mindset for about life could be the same as my mindset when I was in labor, I'd be good. And they went on to talk about how, you know, before they, were, before they had their baby, they talked to everyone they could. They read books. They found everything they, they could and to try to prepare for this. And they said, when you're in labor, obviously, it is very painful. And the whole time, you're feeling the pain. But because, of you, because you know what's coming at the end, he said, she said, I just keep tell, kept telling myself, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. I think there's something of that in what Peter is saying, and I agree. But I've also come to the conclusion that here's our problem. Is that instead of, instead of seeing what God is doing in us like we're in labor, I sometimes wonder if we see it like we're having a kidney stone. Now, I've had some kidney stones last last couple of months, and um, and it's interesting through you know through this process. And lots of you have had them. You know, we've all been sharing our stories, and some of you had a whole lot worse situations than I've had. It, it is something that bonds you with people. I've discovered. <laughs> but you, you know, I've had a number of women tell me they've had babies and they've had kidney stones, and the kidney stones are more painful. And I've said to them, well, I don't know about baby thing looks pretty painful to me. I don't, I don't know. But that's true. But here's the thing. We, the, the difference is, I mean, the pain may be the same. 
The difference is what you get when you're done. You know? On one hand, you got a baby. On the other, you get a rock. And you have to say, it's not worth a rock. It's really not worth a rock. It's not. But the baby, that's a different thing. That's a totally different thing. And Peter is saying to us, look, life is hard and it's painful and it's messy. And and God never promises it to be different. It wasn't any different for his son. But what he does promise is to be with us in the middle of it. He does promise to make something beautiful out of it. He does promise us that there is meaning and hope. And he says, even joy in our trials. Because Christ is risen, it changes everything. Because Christ is risen, we know there is something beyond where we are that is bigger and better and greater and more phenomenal than any of us can ever imagine. And that's the hope that is ours in Christ. He says, even when you don't see Christ, you can still love him. Even when you don't see Christ, you still trust him and you have joy in him. Why? Because we know Christ has conquered. Christ is risen. He's done everything that needs to be done. And we can trust him. And we aren't trusting that I hope he rose from the dead. We're trusting that what we're going through has meaning and purpose because he rose from the dead. And that's the promise of the risen Christ. That when we trust in him, we are trusting in the one who gives life and meaning and purpose. The one who gives joy in the midst of great difficulty. The one who gives peace in our chaos. The one who's at work when we see him and when we don't see him. This is the resurrected Christ. When Peter gets to the end of this section, he says, what you're really getting is the salvation of your souls. You're experiencing the fullness of all that God created you to experience. Body, mind, spirit, emotions, everything about us. That's our inheritance. And he gives us the ability to experience glimpses of that. He works in us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He's changing us. He's making us new. And the call of the empty tomb is to believe that that's true. That when we are awakened to the resurrection, it's an awakening to life. Despite everything that's happening, it's an awakening to life. I suspect that when you were a child, and if you have children, this happens with them, that you, have, you had some kind of bedtime ritual. Every, it seems like every child has a bedtime ritual. Maybe it's reading a few books. Maybe it's uh, telling a story, singing a song. I, I find that you know, with bedtime rituals, typically they're, they're centered around how can I extend this as long as possible. I mean, that was always my, my idea when I was a child. You know, one more song, one more story, one more drink of water. I find that bedtime rituals can be a really important time in the life of a parent and a child. 
There's something about those moments that I have found children tend to open up a little bit more. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the fear of, of going to bed and not wanting to do that. Maybe it's feeling lonely. Maybe it's just life just stopping for a few minutes and you're thinking about things. But I find in those moments, some of the best conversations you have as a parent and a child seem to take place. I was reading years ago about a father who was going through the bedtime ritual with his son. And one of their rituals was the son to pray that, that uh, age-old prayer that lots of children pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, I don't know if that's the best way you want to send your children into bed, is thinking about if I die before I wake. But nevertheless, you know how those things catch on. Well, this night the little boy was praying his, this prayer and he prayed... Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should wake before I die. And then he stopped. Wait. And he looked at his dad and said, I'm sorry I messed it up. He said, it's okay. Don't worry about it. He started over. He did it right. And the father tucked him in and gave him a kiss and walked out of the room. And he said, I couldn't help getting that phrase out of my head. If I should wake before I die. If I should wake before I die. He said, then all of a sudden he realized, to a great extent, that is, that's the the essence of Easter. That's the word of of the empty tomb, that we would wake before we die. That we would wake up to the life that God has, has given us and offered us and created us to live. One of his books, Brendan Manning says, maybe the... The great, the real dichotomy of the church today is not between conservatives and liberals or creationists and evolutionists, but between people who are alive and people who are asleep. And it begs the question which are we? Tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Life is ours. He calls us to awake and to live the gospel. Amen. Traditions of our churches to uh, conclude the uh, Easter worship by uh, singing together uh, Charles Wesley's great Easter hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. We'll follow that with the benediction and uh, the congregational amen. And then the other tradition we have is listening to Vidor's Toccata. Please feel free to stay or to go as the Toccata begins and is played. But let me invite you now to stand. As we sing together this great hymn of our faith, Christ the Lord is risen today.
Again, practice the, uh, the ancient tradition of the church. I will say the Lord is risen. You respond, He is risen indeed. First in a whisper, then in our vo- regular voices, and then taking the roof off of the church. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. Amen.